and minister to our pain. He experienced it. God, I thank you that uh, Jesus, eternal God, became a human and bore our sin, experienced uh, temptation, never sinned, but God also experienced what it means to sorrow. He is a man of sorrows. He knows grief very well. And so God, we come to you. We know that you are a God who understands not just pain, but understands our pain. And God, I pray for those in our church family who are experiencing prolonged battles uh, with pain. God, for uh, Sally Frankel and Sally Evett, for John Fletcher, for Georgia Payton, for Joanne Ruff, for Tom Williamson and Kate Spidener, God, I pray that you will intervene in their lives, that you will heal them, give them endurance, give them hope in Christ in the midst of difficulty. We pray for those who are battling particular uh, illness or recovery right now, for Peggy as she has surgery uh, tomorrow, for Fran Hanby, God, as she is undergoing tests on her heart. Thank you for answering our prayers for Ron Shearer and T.O. Sanders, for Barbara Vickers, and we continue to pray for Kim Schaefer. God, you are the great physician. You heal, and you are the one who heals all our diseases, and so we ask that you would intervene in their lives. Thank you for other uh, churches in our community, God, who are preaching the gospel of the risen Savior this morning for Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Charleston, God. I pray that they will grow in the gospel and in, in their love uh, for you, that they'll share a clear gospel with our community. I pray for their pastor, Craig Bailey. God, encourage him in his ministry. We pray as well today for uh, Governor Henry McMaster. God, give him wisdom. Help him lead in a way that helps the people of our state flourish. Now we pray for those who don't know your name, particularly those in Thai Karat and, and Thailand. God, open eyes in darkness. May they know the hope of the resurrection through Christ. We thank you for one of our members today, for Kathy Ebner. God, bless her in all that she does. Give her wisdom in her life, health, and strength. God, may she continue to be a blessing to those around her. God, for us as a church, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, with humility and gentleness, with patience that we would bear with one another in love and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God, as we come to your word, give hope to the hopeless. May desperate people know hope through Christ. Open eyes this morning to see their need of Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, we'll look at the first 12 verses of this chapter. We read the passages kind of coming up to this section of Scripture in our first service this morning. I want us to look at this passage and really try to answer this question. Why was it that Peter ran? Why Peter ran? Are there certain characters that stick out in, in your mind as you walk through life? Maybe if you're, I don't know, a, a big-time reader or a movie buff, there are certain characters in your favorite set of books or your favorite movies that you identify with. Maybe there's a villain that you love to hate, or maybe there's a hero that you aspire to be, or maybe there's just I don't know, someone that you can identify with, you kind of feel like you've walked a mile in their shoes. Well, the Gospels reveal to us a set of characters. There's certainly one main character, Jesus Christ. We know more about him than anyone else in the Gospels. And yet, there's a set of 12 secondary characters that we know a good bit about as well. Jesus has 12 disciples. A disciple is simply a follower or a learner. So really, these are men walking along with, with Jesus every day and, and learning from him. And it's from these kind of 12 secondary characters that I want us uh, to learn something this morning. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first disciple that we meet is, is Peter. 
Now, Peter is a pretty outspoken disciple. We know a lot about him, but we know some things about Peter, too. We don't know a lot about uh, the other disciples' families, but we know, for instance, uh, that Peter had at least one brother, Peter and Andrew. And so Peter and Andrew were fishermen. But we also know that Peter was married, and we don't meet his wife, but we do meet his mother-in-law. Now, I don't know if that tells you about his mother-in-law, but, you know, she was recorded there in Scripture as well. Now, as we walk through Peter's life, we, we learn some things about him. He's a very brash, outspoken individual. He's bold and he's impetuous. In fact, in Matthew chapter 14, the disciples are in the middle of a giant storm on the Sea of Galilee. And as they're there, they look out across the water and they see something and they think it's a ghost. But as the ghost gets a little nearer, Peter's like, I think that ghost actually looks like Jesus. Now, no one is sure who the ghost is. You can imagine uh, with torrential rain and wind, it's a little bit hard to make out. But he says, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come walk to you on the water like you're walking on the water. And Jesus says, come on, Peter. And so Peter gets out of the boat, but halfway there, as you know, if you know the story, uh, he, he kind of gets nervous because the waves around him begins to sink, and then Jesus rescues him. But Peter's not only bold in his actions, he's very outspoken. Uh, like maybe your kids, the disciples argue a lot. And I kind of have this theory, I don't know that this is true, but I kind of think Peter is the instigator of a lot of those arguments. You know, when they're talking about who's the greatest, I kind of think Peter's, you know, kind of pounding his chest a little bit and saying, guys, that answer is very clear. I'm the greatest. And so they get into this argument. And so we see these things about Peter's life. He's very outspoken. So we know more about Jesus, but we know more about Peter than any of the other disciples. And Peter, because he's very bold, very outspoken, in Luke 22, we find another conversation that Peter's having. And in this one, Jesus is telling Peter some very kind of sobering news. He says, Peter, before the end of this night, you're going to deny me, not, not once, not twice, but three times. But Peter is a very, very self-confident person. So even though the creator of the universe is predicting to him what will happen, he's like, nah, God, I got this. And he says, even if I were going to prison or to death, I would not deny you. But before the end of that night, we find Peter denying Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And one of those times is to a little girl who thought she recognized Peter. So the very bold, outspoken Peter is now running in fear from this little girl. And this brings us then to the story of the resurrection and Peter's part in this resurrection. At the end of Luke chapter 23, we have the burial, the burial of Jesus. And really, it's a terrible Friday. But we call it Good Friday because of what happens next. The darkest day in the history of this world, but by this time, a few women are the only ones caring for Jesus. His disciples have fred, fled. It looks dark and hopeless. Well, because they're Jews, they finish all of their work on Friday, and they take Saturday off, the Sabbath. And this brings us to Luke 24, verse 1. And so if you look there, we'll read these verses together. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, these women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. 
And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Well, the road that Jesus walked was a lonely one, but the first people we meet in this passage are people who are marked by their devotion to Jesus. These women demonstrate remarkable loyalty by showing up on Sunday. Notice, none of the disciples showed up first thing that morning. I mean, these women don't waste any time showing up at the tomb. On the first day of the week, verse 1, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. John's gospel tells us that it was still dark when they showed up. Now, maybe they went while it was dark so that no one would see them because they feared soldiers, but these are the only people to show up first thing that morning. They've been thinking about Jesus' body all weekend, grieving that they, they haven't been able to take care of the one they love, so they take along some spices to sort of freshen up the corpse. And it's here I want us to notice something that we see three times at the end of chapter 23 and then the beginning of chapter 24, but then it just completely disappears. So if you look at the end of 23 in verse 52, you see the body of Jesus. And then in verse 55, the body. And then in verse 3 of chapter 24, the body of the Lord Jesus. But after this, we don't find the body anymore. Why is that? Because verse, 20, verse 3, they didn't find the body. It has completely disappeared. It disappears from our passage as well. The stone is rolled away and the body has gone. And this brings us to what we see next with his surprise on the part of everyone who's seeing this. These women have been grieving all weekend. They've really been unable to do anything about it because their Sabbath laws prevented them from attending to Jesus during this time, and they kind of stumble into Sunday. They're no doubt just kind of emotionally drained at this point. They come up and see the stone rolled away. Now, we see this, we're like, the stone is gone, the body's gone, and we're like, yeah, he's risen. But not these ladies. They go and they're perplexed, verse 4. They're perplexed about what they see. They're, they're like, I could have sworn we left the body right here. And it's not here anymore. Have you had that experience? You, you set your keys down and you cannot find them. That's literally, that's kind of what happens. They're like, we set a body here and it's gone. We can't find it. And they're, they're confused by this. Just like you're confused when you set your phone down. It's unfortunately run out of battery and you can't call it anymore. They have no idea where Jesus is. Well, as they're going through this confusion, two angels appear to them and they are surprised the appearance of the angels is stunning. They're bright white. They're blinding. And so the, the ladies fall to the ground prostrate. And they're, they're basically like, what in the world do we do now? And then the angels speak to them and make clear what they haven't fully realized. Why do you seek the living among the dead? The problem isn't that they've misplaced Jesus. The problem is that they're looking for a corpse when they should be looking for a risen Savior body hasn't gone missing. Jesus is raised. And the angels remind the ladies of this, something they should have remembered, but they didn't. Verse 6, remember how he told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Everything that Jesus predicted, Peter's denial, his death, his burial, his resurrection, happened just as he said it would. And it's right here that the light dawns for these ladies. Verse 8, they remember his words. So we have this flow. Jesus predicts what will happen. People hear what he says, 
but miss what he's actually saying. Would you ever have this experience? I mean, I know if you've got kids, you have this experience. Where you're like, I love you too much, you can't do that. And what they hear is, I hate you and I want to make your life really hard. Now, are those words coming out of your mouth? No, but that's what they hear. You're saying, I love you, so no. And they're like, you hate me, so no. So you're having a conversation, but you're really not understanding one another. You're not speaking the same language. I mean, Jesus told his followers everything that would happen, but every single one of them missed it. None of the 12 got it. None of the women, none of the people hanging around, not Nicodemus, not Joseph of Arimathea, none of these people understood what would happen. There's a part of me that looks back and is like, these disciples are pretty dense, aren't they? I mean, Jesus told them exactly what would happen. Then when exactly what he told them happened, they all missed it. But I got to admit, if every single person there missed it, I got to think I'm not any brighter than these people. I'd have missed it too. This is too crazy. The miracle worker is going to die. And after he's dead, he's going to perform his greatest miracle. This is mind-blowing. Well, today we have instruments, things that tell us when someone is actually dead or not. As Miracle Max said in the cult classic Princess Bride, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Well, in the first century, there are no instruments or no medical experts to determine that death has actually occurred. So sometimes a person that appears dead will come back to life. I mean, it's not just stories. It's like the proverbial, you're carrying the casket to the grave, and then you hear someone beating on the inside of the casket, and you kind of freak out, and, and there's a live person in there. So Jewish tradition said that, that you weren't officially dead until the third day after you'd been dead. They, they, they thought that for two days, the spirit would hover over someone's body, and occasionally that person's spirit would make uh, the decision to kind of re-enter that person and revive them. So it's not until the third day, when Jesus is dead for certain, that, that he actually dies. I mean, if, if Jesus had laid in the grave for a day or two, they might have said, big deal, we've seen this before. I mean, that's impressive, but not that impressive. We've heard of this. But Jesus has died, and he's been in the grave from Friday to Sunday. He is dead. But now the ladies remember, he's not dead, he's alive. So they return to the group and tell the disciples, Jesus isn't dead, he's alive. And the disciples are like, nah. <laughs> not only did they not see it when it happened, but when someone told them it happened, they didn't believe that it actually happened. You see, these women aren't reliable witnesses. I mean, in verse 10, we see all these people who are talking about this. Mary Magdalene, one witness. Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women with them. What's the problem? There are all these witnesses. The problem is they're all women. So the disciples didn't believe him. Now, these men know that Jesus is dead, and so it's not possible that he's alive. And they know you can't rely on a woman. In fact, in their world, in first century Israel, a woman couldn't testify in court because her testimony wasn't considered reliable. So the fact that these women show up with this report doesn't mean a whole lot to these men. So how do the disciples respond to verse 11? These words seem to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But there is one disciple who responds differently from the rest, isn't there? When Peter hears the report, he has
asking, but verse 12 tells us that Peter's response is remarkably different. Peter rose, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Surely someone had to see Peter like get up and go running out, and they were like, what's up with Peter? There's no hesitancy on Peter's part. We don't know what moment he began to believe, but we know that for him, his weeping turns to hope. By this time, Peter's desperate. He's done everything in the book that he could do to fail. He's done every shameful thing that Jesus told him he would do. I mean, if there's a friendship cliff, Peter went and jumped off the cliff, not once, not twice, but three times. And he's a broken heap at the bottom by now. He's the worst friend. He's the worst disciple. So what is it that Peter sees? Now, when Peter goes to the tomb, he doesn't, Luke's, Luke doesn't tell us he sees angels. He says he looks in the tomb and just sees some burial clothes lying there by themselves. And Peter knows. Now Peter knows that what he couldn't even hope could be true is true. It is actually true. He'll be an eyewitness. I mean, he's going to see Jesus face to face, but not yet. But he already knows. He knows it's true. Jesus is alive. So verse 12, he runs home and he marvels at what had happened. You see, this moment changed everything for Peter. Why is it that Peter ran to the tomb hoping and everyone else stayed home? Because Peter is desperate. Peter ran because his misery made him desperate. How often in your life have you been desperate? I mean, we live in a culture that makes it easy to forget what it's like to be desperate. I mean, we don't have to pray for daily bread. I mean, we should, but we don't have to because we got it. But what's it like to be desperate? It's a couple years ago, I was walking through my house, and I realized what it was to be desperate. I mean, our kids are all cruising now, but at this time, Joseph, our little guy, he was at the, it was, it's like that beautiful stage when you put a kid somewhere and they stay there. <laughs> you know, like you go off and come back, and they're in the same spot because they can't go anywhere. They can kind of sit and entertain themselves. And so he's sitting there, and I was walking by, and I don't even know what's going on, and suddenly I just feel like something grabbed my leg. I didn't even know my son was there. I was walking by him, and he grabbed my leg walking by, and then he's just reaching like this. He's desperate for someone to come get him and move him. We forget what it's like to be desperate. Can you remember a time when you were so desperate that you had to act? Ever been so hungry that you would do anything that you could do to find food? Have you ever been so desperate for Jesus that you'd do anything to find him? Does your walk with Christ depend on convenience? Or is reading your Bible and praying your life's breath? Cough. Cough. Maybe a nice day outside. I don't need Jesus on Sunday. Or are you desperate for the grace of Christ that you experience in the gathered worship of his church? When we're in the middle of a trial, the most common thing for us to hope is what? That God will remove the pain, and yet it may be that pain itself that makes us desperate for Jesus. You might be going through a terrible season of life right now. And no sane person hopes for pain like that. But even in the midst of pain, there is hope because of the resurrection. 
It's Peter's pain in this moment that makes him desperate. The resurrection gives him hope. Apart from the resurrection, pain is pointless. But in Christ, we can always have hope that the resurrection power of Jesus is ours. Yet there's some people here this morning seeing Christ, hearing Christ, hearing the words, but not speaking the same language. Like these disciples having the conversation and yet completely missing Jesus. Friend, if you're here, Jesus isn't something to be observed, something to be seen from a distance or a story to hear. He is a person to have a relationship, someone with whom we turn from our sin, and he rescues us forever. Would you turn from your sin and trust him? Because Jesus rose from the dead, desperate people have hope. And we may not experience all of the positive goodness that we hope to experience in life, but there is a day coming when the resurrection power of Christ will be fully ours. Revelation 21 tells us that on that day, God will wipe away every tear. There will be no more crying. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more pain because of the resurrection of Jesus. He will end it all. The resurrection of Jesus gives hope to desperate people, and this changes everything for us. When kids are young, they have something, uh, sometimes, maybe it's a term, I don't know, but we sometimes in our house, we call it the age of wonder. Our little guy's like that right now. And right now, we could be just driving down the street. And as we're driving down the street, suddenly there'll be like, dad, dad. And I could be like having a conversation. It doesn't matter. The dad won't stop until I acknowledge that someone's talking to me. And he's like, dad, 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 dad. And he has seen a monster truck. And there's nothing yet gets him stoked right now like a monster truck. Like, you know, one that you need a stepladder like Tucker Furtick's to get inside. And when Jesus sees, or when Joseph sees these trucks, he's, his mind is blown. Dad, it's a truck. It's a monster truck. And the truth is, you know, when you're three, it doesn't take that much to impress you. It can just be a truck with kind of, kind of large wheels. And he's, he's, he's going there. Friends, don't lose the wonder and the glory of what it means that Jesus is alive. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is risen. And this changes everything. Remember Peter's tears and then remember Peter's hope. Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Run to Christ when you're chased by your fears. Run to Christ when you're chased by your doubt. Run to Christ when you're hounded by your shame. Get up, friends, and run to Jesus. The cross is no shame. It is our glory. The grave is not full. It is empty. Jesus is alive. The resurrection is our hope. Jesus' resurrection gives hope to desperate people. The resurrection takes fear and it turns it into gospel hope. It takes a dead-end job that you hate and it turns it into something that you can do with all your might because you know this isn't the end. It takes fear of having no money, of not being able to, 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 to pay your bills. And it turns it into joy because Jesus became poor so that through him we might become rich. It takes illness and death and it turns it not into the end of a journey but the beginning because we have eternal life with Christ. If all we have is hope in this life, each of these situations is fatalistic and terrible. But if Jesus rose from the dead, this changes everything. This is why the church reminded itself every Sunday, He is risen. And why someone would respond, He is risen indeed. Because the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. 
The hope of nations rises on this glorious truth. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and no lie spread by any man can undo the truth of the resurrection. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, and this changes everything. Jesus, through his resurrection, gives us hope. So if you're here this morning and looking for hope, this is where you find it. In the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word and repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to pray personally there in your seat, and then I'll close this time in prayer. God, I thank you that we serve a risen Savior who's in the world today, and through him we have hope. God, I pray for those here who are at the end of the road who have no hope, that they would remember Peter, his grief, his tears, but then that he ran to the tomb and found hope in Christ. God, Jesus is our hope. He is alive, and so we thank you. We praise you. We come to you through his name. Amen. As we close this portion of our service together, we're going to sing together, Jesus paid it all. If there's a particular way that God has spoken to your heart, if he's working in your heart, we'd love to know that. If there's any way that we can pray for you or encourage you, we're certainly available now, but also uh, later this week or at other times, I'll be here on the front row as we sing. Uh, this won't be quite the end of our service if you know how we do it here, but we're going to give you an opportunity if the Lord is uh, leading you to become a part of this congregation through membership or to follow the Lord in baptism. We'd love to know that. Would you stand please to your feet? We'll sing together, Jesus paid it all. opportunity. If you'd like to sing, have sung, or would sing in the Hallelujah Chorus, you can come on up and join the choir at this time. Now, I know that sometimes we don't give you enough time, so I'm going to stall here for a minute to try to get people to, to come on up and join us here on the platform, and we'll uh, close our service just before our benediction with uh, the Hallelujah Chorus.
And don't be bashful. If you just come on up, you want to join us and sing. You don't even have to know all the notes. In fact, you've already got it memorized and you don't know it. Hallelujah. Say that with me. Hallelujah. See, there you're ready. Let's sing a chorus of This Is My Story, This Is My Song. As you see from the video we did earlier this service, Christ is all about changing our lives for the better. And these were just a few of the stories. But the truth is that every one of you who has Christ in their life has a story to tell. Let's sing about that. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long.
Praise God, we do serve a risen Savior. As you go, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful day.